turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Man, I want you to know it is, it is such a privilege to preach the gospel. so thankful for this opportunity to preach. One of the first Bible verses that I ever memorized after God saved me late in life was a prayer from Moses in Exodus 33. He says, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. I want you to listen to what Moses is asking for there. He acknowledges that the Lord has been incredibly gracious to him. He's found favor in, in God's sight. And then he asked him, he asked God, show me your ways. In other words, show me more, Lord. Show me more. Show me more of what you're like. Show, show me more of your character. Show me more of what you want, what you desire, what pleases you. Show me how you work. Show me how you operate. Show me your ways. I want to know you. He says, I want to know you. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you. The one true and living God. Now why, why is Moses asking for more? He says, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. In other words, I want to know more about you, Lord. So I can please you. So that I can serve you better. So that I can find even more favor in your sight. Man, this should be the desire of every heart in here. This should be the desire of every Christian heart that you would know God more in order to please him more. Now, where can we figure this out? Where, where can we find out God's ways? In God's Word. God's Word is God's revelation of God's ways. This is where we learn about God's character. This is where we learn about what God expects from us. What pleases Him. What displeases Him. And how He operates in the world. But I want you to note this about the Bible. Not every word in God's word is a direct quotation of something God said. Most of the Bible 
is actually a God-breathed record of what God did. We should learn from that. So when we study Scripture, we're not just studying what God said, but we're studying what God did. Not what He says only, but also what He does. We're learning His ways. And one way that we learn is from God's providence. The God who is sovereign over every moment in history, he reveals his ways to us in his providence. Just think about, every, just think about all the stories we have recorded in the Bible, how God has orchestrated the lives of these Old Testament saints, like the life of Abraham and the ministry of Moses or the trials and the triumphs of David. Man, those things really happen. Those are real people. Those are real events. Those are real histories, all orchestrated by God for the purpose of revealing His ways to advance His revelation and to point to Jesus Christ. And it's no different in the New Testament. Just like the twists and turns in David's life reveal more about God and point to Jesus Christ, same with Paul, as we're going to see today. And I would argue that the different degrees and different ways it applies to everybody in here. Because God is sovereign over all. And so here in 2 Corinthians 2, we get a little glimpse of, of how of God's ways in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And I want you to see some of this by answering four questions from this text. Why is Paul in Troas? Why does he leave Troas? And then how does Paul use that as an explanation of gospel ministry? And then how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us all? So let's pray before we read this text. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ who has opened the way to you. You've opened a way that we can approach you. We have, we have like Moses, found favor in your sight. We have obtained grace from heaven. And we ask the same thing. Lord, I ask the same thing today. Lord, please show us now your ways that we may know you. Make yourself known, Lord. Teach us how to be more submissive, how to be better servants as you lead us in triumphal procession through this world. Use us as a means of spreading the knowledge of you everywhere, all the time. And thank you for that privilege to be captives and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Show us your ways, Lord. For your name's sake. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them. And went on to Macedonia. 
But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one a fragrance from death to death. And to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So I want you to notice those six verses are divided in two paragraphs. The first one is about Paul's trip to Troas. And then the second one is about this triumphal procession. And that's the way we're going to look at this text. First, Paul's trip to Troas. It says, verse 12, when I came to Troas. So he's made a trip to this ancient port city in Asia Minor, which is situated over on the western coast of modern-day Turkey on the Asian Sea. It's a really major thoroughfare in Paul's day. And the first question we have to ask of the text is why? Why is Paul here? Why is he in Troas? And the simple answer is in the first sentence. And so is, is Paul in Troas for the gospel? Or is he there looking for Titus? It says in verse 12, I came to Troas to preach the gospel. But then he says in verse 13, But my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus. And so Paul is there for the gospel and looking for Titus. Why is he looking for Titus? And, and why is he telling the Corinthians this in a letter that we now have as scripture? And why in the world is his spirit not at rest because he hadn't found Titus yet. Now the Corinthian church, they know why. They, they know why Paul's spirit's not at rest. But we don't. If we're going to understand this passage, we're going to learn more about God's ways, we need to understand. We need to know why. And the awesome part is that the Bible, the Scripture, the New Testament by itself gives us the answers we need. We just dig a little and piece some stuff together. Paul is worried. Paul is worried about how the church in Corinth has responded to a letter, a severe letter that he wrote to them and he sent by Titus. If you look in the first paragraph of chapter 2, he refers to this letter. And this letter that Titus has now taken to the church in Corinth, it's often referred to as the severe letter or the tearful letter or the painful letter. And the reason it's called that, you'll see in a minute. Let's read this paragraph, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, 
For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote to you, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should, should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, what did Paul write in that tearful letter? We don't know. We don't know. We, we, we know he wrote this letter. We know he sent it via Titus. And now he's waiting. He's anxiously waiting for the response from Titus. But we don't have a copy of the letter. Well, why don't we have a copy of the letter? Because it's not Scripture. It's one of, it's one of who knows how many letters Paul wrote that God did not purposely and providentially preserve as inspired Scripture. As a matter of fact, we know from the text that Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians, and we have two of them. But, as you can see in this paragraph, there's a big, there's a big backstory going on here. A painful backstory going on here. So I want you to hear, let me just rehearse real quick, this history of what got Paul to Troas. So he, Paul leaves Antioch on his second missionary journey to strengthen the churches that he had previously planted on his first journey. Okay, that's what he leaves Antioch to do. And then God providentially prevents him from preaching in Asia and Bithynia, but somehow leaves him to Troas instead. And in Troas, I'm sure Paul preached there briefly, but God gives him a vision. What's referred to as the Macedonian call, and he leaves. It, it propels him further on into Macedonia. Then in Macedonia, he's just hounded by persecutors all the way down the coast from Philippi, the Thessalonica, the Berea to Athens. And then finally, he lands in Corinth and he plants a church in Corinth, and he stays there for a year and a half and then returns back to Antioch. Second missionary journey done. And later, he leaves Antioch again for his third journey and ends up in Ephesus for three years. And from Ephesus, he writes at least three letters to Corinth, to the church at Corinth. The first letter, which is now lost as well, was sent by Timothy, and it's referred to as the warning letter. You can see that in uh, 1 Corinthians. This warning letter was not well received. They didn't appreciate the warning Paul was giving them, and it also exposed more problems in the church, which caused Paul to write another letter, the second letter that we know about, and it's the letter we call 1 Corinthians. Delivered to the church by Timothy. At the end of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul propose to them 
to spending the winter. I'm coming to you. I'm going to spend the winter with you in Corinth before I head back to Jerusalem. But now after this, Paul gets, and before he goes there, he gets some disturbing, really disturbing reports from Corinth, especially about this rising opposition to him. Okay? This causes him to make an emergency visit, an emergency visit to Corinth, which he refers to, we just read, as the painful visit. Now, during that trip, Paul changes his plans a little bit and he proposes to visit them twice. The visit didn't go well. The painful visit did not go well. He's attacked there by false apostles supported by the church and it causes him to retreat. He retreats back to Ephesus and cancels his plan for that double visit. And this is when he sits down and he writes that tearful, severe letter to them. He sends it with Titus and now here he is waiting. The welfare of this church hangs in the balance. He's waiting for word from Titus. He's, he's so anxious about that that he leaves Ephesus and he hopes to meet up with Titus. Titus on his way back, he hopes to meet him in Troas in this port city. And so here he is in Troas with this unceasing burden for the church. He says in verse 13, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus. And that leads to the second big question. Why does Paul leave Troas? That's an incredibly important question because look what happens when he actually gets there. When he actually gets to Troas, look what happens. Verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel, a door was opened for me and the Lord. Do you know what that means? It means Paul's Gospel preaching in Troas is bearing fruit. Paul uses this sort of phrase all the time to refer to gospel success. There's gospel success going on. That means he's getting these opportunities to preach the gospel. And guess what? People are actually responding. Now, do you think this got Paul excited? You better believe it did. This is what he lived for. You compare that sort of re reception to what he usually gets. He usually comes into town, gets beaten up, put in jail, run out of town, but not in Troas, not here, not now. He says a door was opened up for me in, in the Lord. But look at how he says that. I came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, even though a door was opened for me, my spirit was not at rest. He says, even though revival is breaking out in Troas, even though the gospel of Christ is being heralded and received, even though the Lord is opening up hearts and granting faith, even though all that's happening, my spirit is just not at rest. Man, you've got to ask yourself this question. What in the world could drag a minister of the gospel away from an evangelistic opportunity like that. What? 
a burden for the church. A burden for the church. Paul leaves an open door for the gospel because of his burden for the church. It says it right here. Verse 12. Even though, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus, so I took leave of them. Went on to Macedonia. We, we talk a lot about, Ryan prayed this morning about having a burden for the lost. Do we have a burden for the church? Did Paul have a burden for the lost? You better believe he did. You ever read Romans 9? About this great sorrow and unceasing anguish he had in his heart because of his lost Jewish brothers? He said, I wish myself would be accursed and cut off from Christ if they would only be saved. Yeah, he had a burden for the lost. Did he have a burden for the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see it right here. You see it right here in 2 Corinthians 2. You see it later on in, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. This is where, where he's over there. He's defending himself against these false apostles. He's calling himself a, a better servant of Christ. And he lists his litany of suffering. Shipwrecks and beatings and whippings and, and, and all of these things, all these dangers. And he tops that list off with, and not to mention all my anxiety for all the churches... So why does he leave Troas? Because of his burden for the church. But you know, there's actually more to it than that. There's actually more to it than that. Because look at what he says next in verse 14. But thanks be to God. He leaves a revival in Troas because of a troubled church in Corinth and he gives thanks to God? And in case you don't think the two are connected, just read on. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us. He, he's attributing this troubled spirit and his exit, exit from Troas as a providential leading from God. And he gives God thanks for it. And he says, it happens all the time. So why does he leave Troas? Because of the providential leading of God. And I don't want you to miss that. And now that sets up another very interesting question that we need to get right. Is God more concerned with his church than he is with evangelism? I mean, think about it. Think about those lost souls in, in Troas that are now going to miss out on the gospel because of some jacked up church in Corinth. Is this what this passage is teaching us about God's ways? That God is more concerned with His church than He is about evangelism? Now, before I answer that, I want you to note one very important thing what conflict in the church can do. 
conflict in the church can hinder the progress of the gospel. Do you see that happening right here? Or do you see that it looks like that's happening right here? The conflict in Corinth pulls Paul away from an open door in Troas. But is there a concern for the church being pitted against evangelism here? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, far from being two separate things, they are absolutely inseparable things. God's purpose, don't ever forget this, God's purpose in evangelism is to build His church. Is God's providential leading hindering the spread of the gospel? No, just the opposite. It is actually facilitating the spread of the gospel. That's what Paul says. Look at, look at verse 14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, guess what? Spread, leads and spreads the knowledge of Him everywhere. And so, like this, this restless move from Ephesus to Troas to, to, to Macedonia to Corinth, Paul says God is always leading him like that. And it's this leading that God does that is actually doing the spreading. It's spreading the knowledge of him everywhere. And I want you to see that in this particular example. I want you to see that in the example surrounding Troas. Because you think, man, you think it's all about Corinth here. It's all about the church in Corinth, right? I mean, he makes four visits. He writes at least four letters. He sends Timothy twice. He sends Titus twice. He's so burdened for Corinth that he leaves Troas. Man, it's all about Corinth, right? It's all about the church in Corinth. No. It is about Corinth, but it ain't all about Corinth. This is the beauty of God's ways versus our ways. How did Paul get to Corinth to begin with? Remember, we're trying to learn God's ways. How did Paul even get to Corinth? Was he sitting in Antioch after mission number one, whiteboarding a church plant 1,200 miles away in Corinth. No. No. Here's how it started. Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they are. That's, that's missionary journey number two's plan right there. Let's go strengthen the churches. And along the way, Paul decided to go to Asia Minor and preach the gospel. Nope. He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit from doing that. That was his plan, but the Holy Spirit said no. He said, okay, I'll go to Bithynia. Nope. Says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow him to go to Bithynia. So where does he end up? Troas. I'm sure he preached there, but very quickly, God pulled him away again. 
with this vision in the night of some guy over in Macedonia saying, hey, Paul, come, come over here and help us. He, God gives him a vision to pull him away from Troas. Now, you imagine that. That's an evangelist dream, literally and figuratively. You get a vision from God about this country that says, come help us, Mr. Gospel Preacher. What do you think is fixing to happen? Well, you geared up for that trip. That's a mission trip I want to go on. The one where God gave me a vision. What do you think is going to happen when he gets to Philippi? Man, a revival is going to break out for sure. Some evangelistic explosion is going to happen. We're going to have a Pentecost redo. Is that what happens in Philippi? No. A fat lip in jail time. That's what happened in Philippi. And they ran him out of town. Tiny little church was planted, though. At least two converts, Lydia and the jailer, right? But they ran him out of town. He ends up where? In Thessalonica. Guess what? They run him out of town after a few weeks. Welcome to the ministry, Paul. Welcome to this Macedonian call. They drive him down into Berea. He leaves there to Athens. He ends up planting a church in Corinth, just like they drew it up back there in Antioch on the whiteboard. Fast forward to now, Paul's in Troas again, second time. This time with an open door for the gospel, and God pulls him away again. Evangelism stops again. No chance for a church, right? Wrong. Paul does find Titus in Macedonia. He hears about the repentance in Corinth. He sends another letter, this letter, and he ends up following Titus on down to Corinth, and he makes plans to spend the winter there in Corinth and then go on back to Jerusalem by sea, by boat. It seems like Paul has absolutely no plans to go back to Troas to maybe check on some of those disciples that received the gospel and that open door for the gospel. He has no plans for that. Guess who does? Paul is just about, winter's over. He's been in Corinth all winter. He's just about to get on the boat to sail back to Jerusalem. And he learns about a plot from the Jews. And he says, man, I better not go that way. i got to go back up through Macedonia and guess where else? Troas. And he actually ends up sending ahead of him some of his best men, including Timothy, goes ahead of him as he visits the churches, strengthening them on the way back. Then he lands in Troas, spends a week there, and guess what he does there? On Sunday morning, he breaks bread with the disciples and preaches all night. You remember the story where the dude falls out of the window because of Paul's long preaching? That was an all-night church service in Troas right where he had planned all along to plant a church. Don't worry, the kid didn't die. Paul raised him from the dead. But man, think about all the providential leading that went on by God regarding Troas. All the while, Corinth is sucking all the bandwidth of the Apostle Paul. And you know what? That's not even all of it either. 
Because apparently, after Paul's first imprisonment, he leaves and he visits Troas again. He stays there long enough to end up leaving his cloak, his coat, and his books and his parchments because later, at the end of his life, in prison again, he tells Timothy, hey, could you swing by Troas and pick up my cloak and the book and the parchments? I left them with Carpus. I don't have any way to prove it, but I think that the guy Carpus was a leader in the church there and he left his books with him to study. Who could have planned all this? Who could have orchestrated all this and make it happen? Only God. And I want you to know this is how God works. God is at work like this all the time in a million ways, whether you realize it or not. Sometimes we get a glimpse in hindsight, and that's what we get from Paul right here, is a theological hindsight of what's just been going on. And don't forget, Paul hadn't even seen half of it yet. Some of the stuff I just told you hadn't happened yet. But he uses this, this, this to give us this theological hindsight into God's gospel providence which he then uses to launch into an explanation of gospel ministry which he describes as God's triumphal procession look at verse 14 I say this a lot but man Paul is a wordsmith he is an absolute genius. And I know he's just inspired by God, but this God used this man. He is an absolute genius in the, his use of words and imagery. Just, just look at this paragraph. He's going to use, he's going to give us two gospel ministry metaphors to describe his life and ministry and effects of God's providence on it. One is this image of a captured slave of Christ in this triumphal procession. And the second metaphor is he, he's, he's this living sacrifice that's spreading the aroma of Christ. And that's all in like one sentence. So first, he's, just, he, he's showing himself as a captured slave in Christ's triumphal procession. Look, look at that phrase in verse 14. Leads us in triumphal procession. That, that's pretty much an English translation of one word. One Greek word. And it's imagery from a Roman victory parade. He's using this Roman victory parade as a picture of his life and his ministry. You ever, you ever seen any of that old war footage from, from the World War II uh, victory parades, the ticker tape parades in New York City? This is the kind of thing he's talking about. You got the victorious general, uh, uh, Eisenhower or MacArthur, up front. You got these columns of soldiers marching. You got all this military equipment rolling by. You got the air just filled with ticker tape flying everywhere. Crowds are jam-packed and they're just cheering wildly for the conquerors who won the war. This is what he's talking about. 
The Romans did this a lot because they fought a lot and they won a lot. And the Corinthians would have been really familiar with this. But this would have been a lot more lavish and a lot more cruel than our ticker tape parades. This parade might have had exotic animals in it from the faraway land that got conquered. It would have these displays of treasure, all the, the loot that they plundered from their, the, the, the ones that lost the war. They'd be showing that off. The air would be filled with the smell of incense and sacrifices being offered to the Roman gods who helped bring about the victory. And there would most certainly have been captives being paraded in chains through the streets behind the general who had won the victory. They had been, they had been shamefully treated and publicly displayed, especially the king who lost or the general who lost. They paraded in defeat. Man, it was a maximum display of power and glory for the winners and a maximum display of weakness and shame for the losers. Paul says gospel ministries like that. God in Christ is the victorious general. He's the one leading this parade. And those who are in Christ, particularly Paul here, are captive slaves that are being paraded around by God. You see that in verse 14? It says, God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And now, don't forget that this imagery is coming right on the heels of this, this direct connection of this move from Ephesus to Troas to Macedonia. And it also has a whole lot to do with this change of plans that apparently made the church at Corinth mad. And Paul's saying, I'm a slave of Christ. It's God who's leading me around, but it's in triumph. It's, it's for the sake of the gospel. It's actually spreading the knowledge of him everywhere. And it, this really fits Paul's understanding of gospel ministry. This is, this is how he describes himself in other places in Scripture. This is how he describes all of ministry for all ministers of the gospel. Even in his previous letter to the Corinthians, listen to what he says. See how it matches this description. This is how Paul perceived himself. He wrote to him earlier and said, this is how one should regard us as slaves of Christ. I have applied all this to myself and Apollos. God has exhibited us like men sentenced to death. God has exhibited us like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle. We have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
Welcome to the ministry. Paul boasts about this often. He often boasts about this arrangement that God has with him. God's power in his weakness. And man, this is exactly what, this is a big part of the argument. Power in weakness. Paul's power in his weakness. God's power in Paul's weakness. He says all this trouble, all this affliction, all this difficulty, it's meant to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He boasts about his weakness. Who is weak? I'm weak. Who is sufficient? God makes us sufficient. you got to see how this is connected because Paul's enemies back in Corinth, they're attacking him because he's weak. And they're attacking him because of all the bad luck he has. This dude's got some bad luck, y'all. His enemies are basically saying, look at this guy. Look at him. Look at his life. Look at his ministry. You think this guy's a real apostle? You, you think this guy is favored by God? He gets rejected everywhere he goes. He gets beat up everywhere he goes. He keeps changing his plan. He's not a minister of the gospel. Paul says, no, this is what it looks like, my friend. This is what it looks like. Is Paul a spectacle? Yes. Is he a captive? Yes. Is he a slave? Yes. Is he defeated? No. And man, that's the beauty of this image. Paul is the captive slave of Christ who shares and rejoices in the victory. Don't forget, Paul is praising God for this. He's praising God. He's, he's praising God that he's being led in triumph. And don't forget this. Victories for Christ are still happening. And it's his difficulties that are part of advancing the gospel. I mean, the difficulties in God's providence are what got him to Corinth in the first place. And now difficulties with the church in Corinth have now led to an open door and ultimately a church in Troas. This triumphal procession is spreading the knowledge of Christ at all times and in all places, he says. Man, make sure you don't miss that in the text, verse 14. Look, it says always. And then it says everywhere. And it literally says, Paul is literally saying at all times, in all places. So ask the question. When is God leading you in triumphal procession? At all times. God always leads us in triumphal procession. Well, where? Where is He spreading the knowledge of Him? In all places. Through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Where? Everywhere. Paul's enemies say, bad things happen to him everywhere he goes. Paul says, nope. Good things happen. Good news happens everywhere I go. Because I'm spreading the knowledge of Christ crucified everywhere 
I go. And that leads to this second metaphor. Paul has just seamlessly and, and skillfully combined this Roman parade imagery with old covenant sacrifice imagery. Captured slave in triumphal procession and then a living sacrifice that spreads an aroma, the aroma of Christ. Just look in that one sentence how he shifts the metaphor from something you see to something you smell. He says in verse 15, not only are we captives of Christ, we are the aroma of Christ. Now think about that metaphor for a minute. If I were to open a bottle of perfume and I just started just to walk around this room, at some point, you'd all smell it. Whether you liked it or not, you'd smell it. That's the picture. Paul's being led around by God, and all the while, Paul's movements are diffusing, are spreading, are making visible the aroma of Christ. The, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So there's, there's three things I want you to see about this aroma. There's this source of it, there's the spread of it, and then there's the smell of it. And to be clear, the, the source of the aroma isn't Paul, it's the gospel. It's the knowledge of God, God in Christ. So just like if I were walking around with this perfume, I'm not ultimately the source of the aroma. I'm the spreader. He's not the message, Paul. Paul's the messenger. See that in verse 14. It says, through us God spreads the fragrance. What is the fragrance? The fragrance is the knowledge of him everywhere. Through us God spreads the knowledge of him. Through us God spreads the knowledge of God in Christ. And remember that. Remember that when you're sharing the gospel. It's not you they smell. It's Christ. And it's not you they're supposed to smell. If you're diffusing knowledge of yourself, you're doing the wrong thing. Paul said, we, we don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not you, it's Christ. It's not you, it's the gospel. It's this glorious good news and bad news. It's the story, the revelation, the news about who God is. God, the creator of all things, sustainer of all things, the ruler of all things, and the one who's going to judge the earth. The one who is righteous and holy and all-powerful and all-knowing. He sees your heart. It's about man who has sinned against God, rebelled against the creator. And he's been cast and cursed out of the kingdom of God. Totally depraved. Totally condemned. Sinful. In every intention of their heart. And it's about Christ. 
promised from the very beginning, born of a virgin in due time, God in the flesh, the one and only perfect, sinless sacrifice for sin, nailed to a Roman cross, buried in a, uh, in a borrowed tomb, risen from the dead on the third day, ascended to heaven in glory, seated at the right hand of God, and coming soon to save His people and to judge the wicked of all the earth. That's the fragrance. That's what we're spreading everywhere, all the time. This is the reason for the twist and turns in life. Always leading the evangelist, always spreading the gospel. So the spreading, the spread is caused by the gospel proclaimer. I mean, I know some of y'all know essential oil needs a diffuser, right? I that, that's where I should have got an amen from somebody in here. Are you a diffuser? Because God, it's essential. The diffuser is essential. God has ordained it this way. God has established the necessity and the privilege of gospel preaching. Look at what he says, verse 14. Through us. Through us. Through us. God does something. Through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. How in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ going to reach the ends of the earth? How is that aroma going to go that far? Here's how. By thankful gospel proclaimers that are being led to and fro, spreading the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul knew this. He lived it. Romans 10, how are they going to call on him whom they've not believed? How are they going to believe in him whom they've not heard? How are they going to hear unless somebody preaches? And how are they going to preach unless somebody's sent? Unless God leads them? I'm going over here. No, you're going over there. To Troas. Brothers and sisters, we are the aroma of Christ. Now the degree to what that, how that plays out in your life is definitely on a spectrum because we're not the Apostle Paul. This, this story's about him. And not all of you are or will be all official gospel ministers. But to some degree, we are all the aroma of of Christ. We are all in some way salt and light in a dark and dying world. And what a privilege. What a privilege. Is it a privilege to you to serve as an ambassador of the King of Glory in your brief vapor of a life? Now I want to focus last on this third element of the aroma because Paul focuses here more than anything else. What does it smell like? That, that aroma of Christ. What does, it, what does it smell like? How many different smells are in the text? Look at verse 15 and 16. 
How many different smells are there? I want you to know that it's, it's really actually easy to miss the most important one. The gospel here is presenting, presented as having three different smells to three different people. There is one smell to those who are perishing. There is one smell to those who are being saved. And look at this. There is one smell to God Himself. We are the aroma of Christ to God. Don't miss that. Remember, God's the one who set all this up to begin with. He's the one who's leading us around in triumphal procession. And look, verse 15 says, We are the aroma of Christ to God. That is special. In other words, there's something about all this that has an effect on God Himself. You may not have noticed it yet in this text, but there's actually two different words for smell in this passage. And they actually represent two different Greek words that Paul is using intentionally on purpose. you got the smell described as a fragrance everywhere except when it comes to God in verse 15. And there it's translated aroma. The, the word fragrance is a very general word for smell. But the word aroma is very specific to a sweet pleasing aroma. And Paul is not just grabbing out of thin air. He's pulling that from the Old Testament. This word is used over and over again for these old covenant sacrifices that were a pleasing aroma to Yahweh, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, if you think that burnt offerings of bulls and goats in the Old Testament were a pleasing aroma to God, what do you think about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is? Paul knows good and well the magnitude of what he's saying right here. He says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Can there be anything more pleasing to God himself than the aroma of Christ? And pay attention then to verse 15. We are the aroma of Christ. We are, as verse 14 says, we are in Christ. We are, as Romans 12 says, living sacrifices. We, whenever we're led around by God, even through suffering, even through difficult providence, through all these confusing, hard twists and turns in life, even in persecution, even if we're killed for Christ's namesake, if we are making him known along the way, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Do you aim to please God? Guess what? This pleases God. Sacrificing your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ pleases God. Do you hear me? Somebody in here needs to hear me. Sacrificing, throwing your life away. Wasting your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ pleases God above all things. We 
are the aroma of Christ to God. But just because it pleases God doesn't mean it pleases the world. Because it doesn't. Look at that second smell. You may be the pleasing aroma of Christ to God, but you're the smell of death. You're the smell of death to those who are perishing. What does the unconverted world think about the gospel? The same thing you think about roadkill on the side of the highway. Can't get away from it fast enough. Can't get away from it fast enough. Look at verses 15 and 16. We're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one of fragrance from death to death. Man, to the unbelieving world, the death of Christ is like the smell of death. It's offensive. It's repulsive. It's unattractive. It's foolishness. There's there's no glory in it. You know why? Because it's all a condemnation. To them, the gospel is just a condemnation of their lifestyle and a pronunciation of their own eternal death sentence. To, to, To a world who loves their sin, the gospel is a call to give up what you love, to give up everything that's worth living for. And some will do everything they can to avoid it. And some will do everything they can to stop it. They hate Christ and they hate the message of Christ. And guess what? They're going to hate the messenger too. Why? Because you're the aroma of Christ. This is the explanation why people avoid you. This is the explanation of why the world is hating you. This is the explanation of why there's this undercurrent in America that's growing in hatred towards you. You're the smell of death. You're the aroma of Christ. And it stinks. The worst part of it all is that the gospel has a real effect. Turning your nose up, and somebody needs to hear this too. Turning your nose up to the gospel leads to eternal death. Don't, don't, don't miss the effect. He's got a smell in the effect right there in three, three words. A fragrance from death to death. Smells like death, and if it smells like death to you, it's going to lead to your death. As long as you don't like the gospel, you're headed for hell. It's like like stumbling upon a dead animal in the woods. You, You turn to get away from the smell, but you run into a grizzly bear. From death to death. The gospel is not neutral, my friend. You can't just ignore it. It divides all of humanity into these two groups. Those that are perishing and those that are being saved. Those that think the gospel smells like death. Those that think it smells like life. And when Jesus comes back, he's coming back to do two things. He's going to save those that are eagerly awaiting him. And he's going to inflict this eternal punishment on those who do not obey the gospel. Your eternal destiny depends on how you receive the gospel. To one, it's a fragrance of death unto death. But to the other, my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a fragrance from life to life. The smell of life. The gospel is the sweet smell 
of life. Man, there is nothing that can be more extreme than these two receptions of the exact same message. You hate it or you love it. Man, when the Holy Spirit accompanies the gospel with power, that smell of death becomes the smell of eternal life because that's what the gospel is. The sweetest smell and the most glorious sight possible to a regenerate heart. To really know and to believe that the Son of God loved me, gave Himself up for me, is a sweet fragrance. And it's life-giving and it's life-changing. And most of you in this room know it. And you love it. It's the message of eternal life. And guess what, messenger? You're the aroma of Christ. You're, you're delivering to them eternal life. What, what a privilege. What a responsibility. No wonder Paul says who is sufficient for these things. You're a walking, talking representation of the crucified Son of God. You're spreading the knowledge of Him everywhere. What a privilege. Who is sufficient? Paul says our sufficiency is from God. So he's not saying he's not sufficient. He's saying he is sufficient. Now, since this is my, technically my New Year's Day sermon, I want to give you five resolutions, not just for 2023, but for the rest of your life. Number one, grow in reading your Bible this way. Ask questions when you're reading the scriptures and immediately search out the answers. Begin to piece together all the connections you can find and then armed with that, immerse yourself. Immerse yourself in the historical and theological context. Know the original situation before you make personal application. And you, in, in, in this, you're going to grow in your understanding of God's ways and He does not and has not changed. Number two, savor the gospel. How does it smell to you? How does the gospel smell to you? I'm going to be honest. To some of you in this room, quite frankly, I know the gospel stinks. To some of you here... Opening up God's word is like opening up a sack of dead fish. I know. Because I've been there. You can hardly stand to be around it. Some of you kids here today are just like me when I was growing up. Just like me. You may never say it out loud, but you cannot stand coming to church. And you're so tired of people talking about the Bible, talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus. Everywhere. Oh, here we go with the Bible stuff again. And there's some of you that are grown, grown men, grown women in here. Just like me as an adult. You can't stand coming here either. I don't even know why you're here. I don't know why I was there. I do now. And then somehow you've conditioned yourself to endure the smell 
You can weather the gospel storm for an hour or so. You've trained yourself to sit through an hour or so of preaching and be totally unaffected by the gospel. You've trained yourself to think about football or lunch or a thousand other things to suppress the aroma of Christ. And I want all of you to know that this text is describing you. It explains why you think that way. It's a warning for you where you're headed. The gospel to you is a fragrance from death that leads to death. But you cannot ignore Christ forever. He is the Son of the living God. He is the one with all authority in heaven on earth. He's the one that's going to judge the living and the dead. And when He tells you, if you don't heed His word today, when He tells you, depart from me, I never knew you, you may well be reminded how many times you were repulsed by hearing the beautiful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's still mercy. There is mercy to be had right now today. Change your mind. Savor the gospel. Savor the gospel. You need forgiveness, and here it is. He read this morning, plenteous redemption. There's room for more at Christ's feet at the cross. Come to Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and embrace the Son of God who gave himself up for you. And those of you here, most of you here, who know and love the gospel, love it more. Love it more. Preach yourself, we say this a lot, preach yourself happy in the Lord daily. Think deeply on these things every day. This is where Christian joy comes from. Fellowship with a triune God who brought you to himself by the blood of his son. Savor the gospel. Third thing maximize God's providence. Maximize God's providence. And man, you, don't know, you may not know about this about me, but I wrestled with which word to use there, dealing with God's providence in your life. I thought about embrace God's providence, take advantage of God's providence, steward God's providence, relish it, cherish it, capitalize on it. And I settled on maximize maximize God's providence. And regardless of which words you put there, it starts with this, learning how to recognize it. Learning how to recognize it and striving to be in tune with what God is doing in and around you while you keep this truth in mind that at all times God is leading us in triumphal procession and he is through us spreading the knowledge of him everywhere. Keep that in your mind and maximize it when you see it. Maximize every gospel opportunity. Maximize every trial. Maximize every roadblock, every twist and turn. And maximize where you are right now. Right now. Well, I want to go to Corinth. Well, you're in Troas right now. Ain't nothing happening in Troas. Yes, there is. Number four. Have a greater burden for the church. Paul had a decision to make. He left an evangelistic opportunity because of a God-wrought burden for the church. 
not the other way around. Is he, is, is he pitting the church against evangelism? Absolutely not. We talked about that. The church is how God saves lost people. The church is the bank vault of the gospel. It's the university for gospel evangelism. It's the launching point for laborers headed into the harvest. And it is the maturing ground when the harvest bears fruit. The church is the means and the end of evangelism. They're not separate. If you want a greater burden for the lost, get a greater burden for the church of Jesus Christ. And last, be the aroma of Christ, my friend. Be the aroma of Christ. Paul says we are. Be it. What's your motivation? Lost people? Yeah. The church? Yeah. Most importantly, it pleases God. This pleases God. Don't waste your life. Lose it. Be the aroma of Christ. Share the gospel at all times, in all places. Sacrifice your life for the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They both belong to Him. I want to make a special appeal, though. I mean, this, this applies to everybody. Be the aroma of Christ. But I want to make a special appeal to some of you here. Like, and I want you to listen to me. This last thing I'm going to say. There are some of you here that need to get off the fence and go all in for the gospel. Not all of you. A few of you. A handful. One. Listen to me. It's time to set your mind on the harvest and leave the world behind. I'm serious. It's, it's time for you to quit fooling around with the things of this world and to lose your life for Jesus Christ. Is there a man here? Is there a man here who wants to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ? Is there a young man here who wants to suffer for the gospel? Is there an older man here who's ready to be a fool for Jesus Christ? Is there anybody here that has a desire to live the rest of your days as a servant of Christ, as a minister of the gospel? Are you ready? Are you ready to live like a man sentenced to death? Are you ready to be a spectacle? I just want to be a spectacle to the world and to the angels and to men for the sake of Jesus Christ. Is there one man here? Are you ready to be led by God like a slave in triumphal procession? To be dragged to the ends of the earth, spreading the knowledge of Him everywhere you go? Are you ready to preach to people who don't want to hear it? Is it your ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named? That's Paul's ambition. that's you then be the aroma of Christ start now by praying start praying about it start praying for it start studying 
Start striving and then pray some more and then pray some more. Pray that God himself would commission you, set you apart like he did Paul. Make you a sufficient minister of the new covenant. That one that's resolved like Paul, not to be a peddler of, of God's word, but a man of sincerity, commissioned by God, ready in season and out, in favor. And when you're not in favor, to speak Christ, to stand on thus saith the Lord anytime, any place, everywhere, for his namesake, in the sight of God, for his church, and for the gospel. Is there anybody here that wants to do that? Then do it. Let's pray.